Hello, folks. I hope everyone had a great weekend. Thank you for tuning in to the Federalist Files. What I'm going to go over today is going to be Federalist number 31. It is titled The Same Subject Continued Concerning the General Power of Taxation. It's written by Alexander Hamilton, January 1st, 1788. Uh, topics include the people paramount over the government and unlimited power of taxation to fund the common defense. And then he kind of goes into a almost a psychological uh, theory a little bit here, almost like a philo- more like a philosophical theory about human nature as well. So now in this paper, this one's pretty general, this one's pretty short as well. It is going to be regarding the taxation and the reasons for unlimited taxation um, because of self-preservation being paramount for the common defense amongst everything else for the continuation of the nation really so in this paper hamilton defends the provision on the power of the national government to collect revenue to begin uh, hamilton uses multiple examples of mathematics and geometrical doctrine and philosophy to get his point across this part's a little confusing but i didn't i'm not really going to dive that deep into it but he states and i quote the infinite divisibility of a finite thing extending even to the minutest atom is a point agreed among geometricians, though not less incomprehensible to common sense than any of those metrics in religion. End quote. So pretty, I don't know why, but he's explaining that infinite divisibility of a finite thing, saying, let's say you divide uh, five a million times, uh, the five divided by five, and then whatever that is, which is which would be one divided by five divided by five divided by five over and over and over again to the point where you get a decimal point with a bunch of zeros. Um, now he's saying that's incomprehensible to common sense than any of those mysteries. Is a point agreed among? Oh, so what he's saying actually this is this is pretty profound here. <laughs> so what he's saying is this is a point that is agreed amongst people geometricians. Uh, now, though not less incomprehensible to common sense than any of those mysteries in religion. So, pretty much saying uh, common sense in general and as well as religion cannot be. This is something that is not quite... He's making the difference between quantitative and qualitative. Qualitative things, he he's kind of stating that they're more subjective. They can be debated much more than something that is quantitative by the numbers. So then he goes on to state, and I quote, Of the same nature are these other maxims in ethics and politics, that there cannot be an effect without a cause, that the means ought to be proportioned to the end, that every power ought to be commensurate with its object, that there ought to be no limitation of a power destined to affect a purpose which is itself incapable of limitation, end quote. So here what he's going to go into is he's going to go into the taxation uh, in terms of funding the common defense. Now he's talking about other maxims, ethics and politics. There cannot be an effect without a cause. He's just using very generic phrases that the means ought to be proportioned to the ends, which makes sense. Um, if you're trying to reach a certain end, you have to have the means in order to get there. And that every power ought to be commensurate with its object. It must be. It must make sense to power over whatever it is the object. And the object in this case would be the American people. And uh, so he's pretty much saying that the federal government should be able to have the power to extend to the American people because that is the object. 
and that there ought to be no limitation of a power destined to affect a purpose which in is itself incapable of limitation. So he's saying there should be no limitation on a power. Oh, now I understand. He's talking about the military, I guess, or the, or the yes, the military, the common defense. There should be no limitation on a power. Uh, and if there is no limitation on that power, because this is something that would be incapable of limitation because it, it serves whatever the common defense at that time is needed. It's on a necessity basis. Thus, there really is no limitation to this power and to affect a purpose which is itself incapable of limitation. So you shouldn't limit the ability of taxation because uh, the the growth of the military is cannot be limited for self-preservation reasons. So because the military, the power of the military really is, not that it's unlimited, but it, it's not finite. You don't have a set standard for it. It grows on an as-needs basis, what is necessary at the time for self-preservation of the country. Thus, taxation should be the same thing. And, and this all refers to the common defense. This does not refer to, you know, these weird social safety nets we currently have. It refers specifically to the common, de uh, common defense and self-preservation. So he continues... Uh, and I quote, but in the sciences of morals and politics, men are found far less tractable to a certain degree. It is right and useful that this should be the case. Caution and investigation are a necessary armor against error and imposition, end quote. So here's what he's saying is people are not, uh, when it comes to the sciences of morals and politics, men aren't as convinced. Uh, they are far, they're found to be far less convinced, far less um, influent influenced or influential i guess you would say i want to get the exact uh, uh so tractable because i'm looking at the exact definition i guess easier to handle yielding that makes more sense docile so yeah men men are not as docile towards towards uh morals and politics they're not going to just yield uh, that is something that's actually going on in our current system where a lot of people are yielding and aren't actually asking questions. They're not investigating themselves uh, to avoid error and imposition. So then he goes on. What does he say here? And then he goes on and continues here. He says, and I quote, But this untractableness may be carried too far and may degenerate into obstinacy. Uh, per perverseness or disingenuity uh, though it cannot be pretended that the principles of moral and political knowledge have in general the same degree of certainty with those of the mathematics uh, yet they have much better claims in this respect than to judge from the conduct of men in particular situations we should be disposed to allow them so everybody's really saying uh, this men not being so easy to be convinced, this is something that may degenerate into perverseness, disingenuity. Now, what you see is you see on the left and the right. So on the right, what you see is like crazy and these crazy theories that are going on all the time, pretty much these crazy, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know much about QAnon. So I don't even want to call it QAnon. I'm unaware, completely unaware of QAnon. I really have not read into any of the information there, but you'll see these, these false fabricated tweets where they really just, I don't even know who's putting them out, but then it just goes viral and it gets, uh, gets shared in all these different pages. 
And that's, it does actually invalidate the conservative position because then when me myself, when I come out and I make a statement and then I have like, you know, whatever news I have behind it or what have you, whatever opinion I have, it's everyone that is on the left or isn't political always believes now at this point that anyone that's on the right is pretty much a conspiracy theorist whenever they come out with any type of information. And, and, uh, then when, what people don't understand is, I actually, I, and I'm sure many other conservatives, I read about 16 articles, 16 articles a show, uh, at least, maybe I try to cut it in half, I, I usually cover around maybe 7 to 8 articles or current event situations, I do that about twice a week, so I'm constantly reading up on what I'm talking about, it's not something that I'm just fabricating out of my brainstem, now, the left doesn't see it that way, people that are on the left, on social media, that come after me, they don't see it that way at all. They don't see that I'm going out there and I'm actually researching as much as I can. They just think that I'm perverse. I'm just, I'm out of my mind and I am a conspiracy theorist. That's the way I've been perceived across the board pretty much uh, from everybody on the left. Now, everything that I do and, and I always have in the show notes all the information that I'm referring to. I have the receipts, I have the photos, if you watch me on either YouTube, which I'll soon probably be kicked off of, or Rumble, so that's why it's kind of perplexing to me that I'm, I'm being almost, um, what's the word for it, I'm just being labeled as like someone that doesn't know what they're taught, and I'm all over the place, like, and, and this is an opinion that many on the right hold, conservatives on the right hold, with a lot of different things that they're being called almost as conspiracy theorists, like they've lost their mind. Meanwhile, there's 74 million people that voted the same way, so I don't really know. I mean, it's a little less than the voting population, or I mean, it was a little less than 50% of the country, but still it's a substantial amount to disregard all of them as conspiracy theorists, or white supremacists, or racists. So what's being said here is that the untractableness, so, so sometimes men not being yielding or being unyielding, men being unyielding when it comes to politics, it's going to degenerate into disingenuity because people are unwilling to move, they plant their heels, they're unwilling to change any positions. Now in politics, in, in this regard here at this time, it was, politics was a totally different thing. Now, that being said... The current system that we have, politics really delves into the culture, delves into all different uh, things. Now, people are unwilling to switch their opinion even if they are, they find a counter-argument to what their opinion uh, is, and they don't really have a way to, they really just dig their heels in essentially and they don't do anything about it now. You would, you would, I mean me personally, I am from the left I was pretty far left socially, especially uh, the only thing that I was on the right side was that I thought that taxes should be lowered, which I think is kind of generic. I think everyone kind of likes the idea of a tax cut. Not really sure, but but a tax cut in a general sense for someone like me that was a working class person, or still am a working class person, but at that time, uh, that's what I wanted. I want a tax cut. I was of the left, so I understand all of the left. I, I understand the entire idea and every I, I I get all of it and once I started to read and started to listen and actually look into what is going on oh why do I feel this way about this is there any facts to to support my opinion on this is there any facts that I look it all up myself and I found that I am I was wrong in a lot of things like 
there's a lot of things I, I felt I was uh, I was misled really uh, throughout my life, and that's kind of what got me here to this point where I am now. So I am of the left. So I know the tactics of the left. I understand all of them. So uh, yeah. So next, next he states, and I quote: "The obscurity is much oftener in the passions and prejudices of the reasoner than in the subject. Men, upon too many occasions, do not give their own understandings fair play, but yielding to some untoward bias, they entangle themselves in words and confound themselves in subtleties." End quote. So this is actually probably this is a perfect personification of what is going on in our current politics so he states the obscurity and much oftener passions prejudices reasoner so we have people's passions as long as they're prejudices things that are not rooted in fact rooted in in knowledge uh, not rooted in any type of empirical data or evidence and people will go out and they will cast their aspersions on everyone because of their passions and their prejudices now, men upon too many occasions do not give their own understandings fair play, which is interesting, but yielding to some untoward bias, they entangle themselves in words and confound themselves in subtlety. So really people sit there and fight about semantics is what he's saying. And that's something that is still currently going on in politics today. Uh, they'll, they will confound themselves. They'll confound other people's words. They will misconceive arguments purposely, might I add. They do that. They will word what you say, and then they will fight. They will argue against you uh, something that you didn't even say, just to confound principles that they want to. Essentially, they want to really just call you a racist. So then they'll sit there and they'll fight you, and they'll bring up arguments of things that you didn't even mention. And then you have to sit there and kind of go along on this weird, on this weird journey. Instead of them, what's really happening is people are just people are listening to other people. But they're really not. They're thinking in the back of their head, what's my next argument? How, what am, I'm trying to solidify my argument and put it together right now so I can throw it out at this person so I can really win the debate. But rather, they don't look at, I think it's called the Socratic method, where you need to agree on the terms. Some people may think that one term is totally different than another. They have two different meanings, and then they'll sit there and they'll be fighting for 20 minutes, and they don't realize that they actually had two different definitions of the exact same word or the phrase that they're describing. And that's that happens. That's considered cognitive dissonance or uh, confirmation bias, too, at the same time, really. So that that consistently goes on in politics, the semantics game where they where they sit here and they go, oh, you know, for example, you had Donald Trump was under the Trump administration. They were detaining children, separating them from their families at the border. Now, that policy was a leftover Obama administration policy, I believe it was enacted through like the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and I want to say something like 2013 to 2014. So that was something that was uh, created then, and then it was carried over into the Trump administration, and then the media decides to point it out when it was already going on in the in the past administration, but at that time they did not care about it. Now suddenly, since Trump's the president, they care about it. That's just one of the examples of the confounding or the, the semantics game that we play in politics, or or the what they do is they'll throw they'll throw like oh well what about Mike Flynn what about this person what about that person each person has a different on uh, case a different basis like Paul Manafort for example he was arrested not for what he did for the Trump campaign he was arrested for what he did before that and then they're calling him you know they're connecting him and Trump 
for for his dealings. I think Roger Stone. I don't remember. I think he obstructed Congress, which really is just a process crime. Like he he lied to Congress about something. Like, oh my God, we can't lie to the pub- public official. God forbid we do that. And then they go and they find that the whole investigation's garbage anyway. So they pretty much just they just throw everything out. Like Mike Flynn. So what they do is they point to these individuals. Boom, 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 boom. And then you have to go, and now you have to look up all the information, all the background on these people. And no one has time for that. Let's be real here. So then you could say, oh, well, well Trump uh, pardoned Mike Flynn, so Trump, Trump's a really bad guy. You, they play the semantics game. Oh, Trump's a terrible guy because he pardoned Mike Flynn. Mike Flynn's also a terrible guy because he was in prison. Um for lying to the FBI in an investigation where he didn't know he was being investigated or he was being questioned and he did not. And then, and then it goes to show the two FBI agents said he was not trying to be deceitful too on top of that. And then they throw out the entire Trump investigation anyway, because they can't find anything to get him on. And then, and then they, in essence, they continue to try to, to, uh, to catch Mike Flynn and they keep him in court and they won't drop the case, even though there's no precedent for the kid. At that point, the entire thing is crumbled. You just let the guy go, but that doesn't happen because it's all political. And we're going to take a guy that's been serving in our military for like 30 years and just treat him like garbage. Uh, so those are the kind of subtleties that you see in politics, just the semantics game. You throw this name out, throw that name out, and then you have to sit there and you have to fight every single, you have to figure out the story behind everything. And the little subtleties, the little, Things that honestly don't really mean much. I mean, yeah, yeah, they may be important in some places, but they really don't mean much otherwise. Like personal character traits. Like, oh, I don't like the way he talks. I don't like the way he walks. He says things that I don't like, but his policies are really good, but I don't care because he says things that hurt people's feelings. It's it's those things that people talk about in politics. The things that truly, honestly, they don't matter. The things that actually matter is what you do. It is the policy enacted. It is not the semantics game. So that being said, these excerpts give the reader a perspective of the philosophies behind the thinking of the founders. Hamilton knew that men are flawed and they will have their own unsubstantiated biases that they argue for. Now Hamilton discerns that politics in and of itself is a tribal game that will cause disingenuous behaviors to culminate and prosper. That it is imperative to research and investigate on your own instead of adamantly believing in an unsubstantiated narrative that is imposed on you. So here he's just saying, you know, go out and do your thing, go out, study, go research, look things up, be informed. Pretty much things I say on this show. Now, uh, Alexander Hamilton, next he claims, and I quote, a government ought to contain in itself every power requisite to the full accomplishment of the objects committed to its care and to the complete execution of the trust for which it is responsible, free from every other control but a regard to the public good and to the sense of the people, end quote. So he's just saying that the government should not be contained by the wraps of the bureaucracy or the rules in terms of accomplishing the what the objects want. As in, when he means the objects, he means the people themselves. They shouldn't. Uh, they should be able to achieve the for the public good things that are needed by the objects or the people in the government that are committed to its care. Yeah, pretty much just saying that they should be able to build up the revenue to accomplish what they need to keep the society going. So Hamilton asserts that an unlimited power of taxation must be supported to fund the national government so so that it shall execute what is required of it. 
Now, then he states next, he states, and I quote, the power of making that provision ought to know no other bounds than the exigencies of the nation and the resources of the community, as revenue is the essential engine by which the means of answering the national exigencies must be procured. The power of procuring that article in its full extent must necessarily be comprehended in that of providing for those exigencies, end quote. So he's saying in the disaster, the calamity, uh, areas in the exigencies, the dire situations, that should be the barometer for how much we should be able to fund the government. Because if a government cannot fund during the, the disasters, if they cannot collect revenues and to help the public good during disaster time, then it will end in the dissolution of the union you will, there will no longer be a country if we are getting invaded, and that's considered an exigency scenario and also an existential scenario. And the government just can't raise the troops because they didn't have the revenue coming in. So he's just saying that we should procure the power of taxation to be comprehended by the uh, providing for those emergency scenarios. Now, in other words, because of the chance of emergency situations mostly related to war, the national government should have full power of taxation. This is another take that Hamilton would attribute to the self-preservation of the Union. Now, what I got next is, he, he goes on, he continues, and I quote, As theory and practice conspire to prove that the power of procuring revenue is unavailing when exercised over the states in their collective capacities, the federal government must of necessity be invested with an unqualified power of taxation in the ordinary modes, end quote. So he's saying that the power, theory practice conspire to prove that the power of procuring revenue is unavailing when exercised over the states. Oh, he's talking about the collective. Okay, so he's saying the federal government must be able, they, they had they had this system where the taxation went to the states and the states kind of had the discretion on whether or not the tax, it was their responsibility and then they would send the money back to the federal government. This, this system didn't work and that's kind of what he's alluding to here. This is something I mentioned before because the objects of the government should be the people and not the state governments. So the federal the federal government, he's saying, should be invested in unqualified power of taxation in ordinary modes. And then he's going to go on to explain some of his dissenters and his opinion on this. So the government needs this power because it is impossible to ascertain what the future holds. The government cannot be restricted in times of stress and peril. Contenders are afraid the national government will usurp its power. Uh, this contention has been answered many times in before-mentioned articles. Hamilton asserts that the government needs to have the power of taxation to carry out its constitutional obligation. Now, I think it, it, this might be the part where he starts to state, yeah. So then he'll explain uh, why the reasoning for this. And then he'll also explain what the dissenters are saying. So, so first, he states, and I quote, did not experience events the contrary. It would be natural to conclude that the propriety of the general power of taxation in the national government might safely be permitted to rest on the evidence of those propositions. Unassisted by any additional arguments or illustrations, but we find, in fact, that the antagonists of the proposed Constitution so far from acquiescing in their justness or truth seem to make their principal and most zealous effort against a part of the plan. It may therefore be satisfactory to analyze the arguments with which they combat it. So he's talking about his arguments for this this 
unqualified power of taxation from the federal government for self-preservation reasons. So he goes on to state, and I quote, It is not true because the exigencies of the union may not be susceptible of limitation that its power of laying taxes ought to be unconfined. Revenue is as requisite to the purposes of the local administrations as to those of the union, and the former are at least of equal importance with the latter to the happiness of the people. It is therefore as necessary that the state government should be able to command the means of supplying their wants as that the national government should possess the like faculty in respect to the wants of the union, end quote. So he's saying the state has, I guess at this point, they have some sort of an unfettered power themselves where they could... Uh, where they can build up revenue and they can tax almost like an unlimited taxation, which actually kind of makes sense now that I think about it. There's nothing in the federal constitution that stops the states from having unlimited taxation. So it does make sense. And he's saying that the federal government should have that same power because they need to also possess the power to uh, supply the wants of the union and the wants meaning the military. So then he goes on to explain this now. He states, and I quote, and this is another point he has, this mode of reasoning appears sometimes to turn upon the supposition of usurpation in the national government. At other times, it seems to be designed only as a deduction from the constitutional operation of its intended powers. It is only in the latter light that it can be uh, admitted to have any pretension of fairness. The moment we launch into conjectures about usurpations of the federal government, we get into an unfathomable abyss and fairly put ourselves out to the reach of all reasoning, end quote. So he's stating when he when the moment you lock into the usurpation, the idea of usurpation from the federal government, you end up in an unfathomable abyss because there's so many different scenarios and the reasoning is so it's so out of we put ourselves out of the reach of all reasoning. It's just so uh, such an unreasonable idea at this time. Uh, so I don't know if if it really pertains to today necessarily because there's definitely some usurpations from uh, federal government in terms of Patriot Act spying on people, which is against uh, the I think it's a Fourth Amendment. I get the amendments confused. The unreasonable search and seizure. I think that's a fourth. I get them confused sometimes. No, or is it the right to the speedy fair trials, the fourth? I don't remember, but it's against the Constitution. It's against the Bill of Rights. That's all I know. So, uh, so yeah, you got pretension of fairness. So he's saying that the one that not, he's not talking about the usurpation of the national government. At other times, it seems to be designed only as a deduction from the constitutional operation of its intended powers. It is only the latter light. So he's talking about designed as a deduction uh too much maybe too much too much taxation for the intended powers so then he he continues on this he states and i quote i repeat here what i have observed in substance in another place that all observations founded upon the danger of usurpation ought to be referred to the composition and structure of the government not to the nature or extent of its powers the state government by their original constitutions are invested with complete sovereignty in what does our security consist against usurpation from that quarter? Doubtless in the manner of their formation and in a due dependence of those who are to administer them upon the people, if the proposed construction of the federal government be found upon an impartial examination of it, to be such as to afford to a proper extent the same species of security, all apprehensions on the score of usurpation ought to be discarded, end quote. So he's pretty much saying that the federal government, the chances of the state government actually usurping their power and encroaching on the powers of the federal government are much more likely than the federal government usurping and encroaching on the rights of the uh, the state government, which is actually, 
let me think about it. I mean, right now what we have going on is we have state governments really infringing on their own powers. Yeah, actually, you know what? It's true. We we do have state governments uh, because we had state governments change election rules in Georgia as well as Pennsylvania. I think Michigan, too. There were some executive order rules that were changing the rules, which is actually against the federal constitution. I mean, I'm sure that it's also against the state constitution as well, just because the state constitution has to coincide with the federal constitution. But it definitely is for sure against the federal constitution because the manner, the time of, of elections have to be set up by the state legislatures thereof so the state so when pennsylvania goes to vote their time and manner and place is all something that's set up by the state legislator of pennsylvania so that is actually something that has happened so actually yeah there's probably more usurpations by state gut and, and then as well with second amendment things there's there's and first amendment things too in some regards um yeah, there's probably more encroachments from the state going on to the federal than the federal going on to the state, even though the people fear the federal. And they f they fear the federal because of the federal's uh, amount of money, really. A lot of people, they think the federal government is way too large and, and we should hand over some of the powers to the state government, which does make sense in some ways, in some regards. I do agree with that sentiment, for sure. That's much more of a libertarian principle. But uh, so So then he continues here. And fairness, the moment we launch conjectures, I'm trying to think where I am here. So finally, complete sovereignty, due dependence. Okay, so finally, Ham Hamilton answers the contentions of usurpations of power by the national government. He states, and I quote, It should not be forgotten that a disposition in the state government to encroach upon the rights of the union is quite as probable as the disposition in the union to encroach upon the rights of the state governments. End quote. So he's just saying state governments, it's as likely they usurp or encroach on the rights of the federal as the federal does to them. So then he goes on, he states this, and I quote, What side would be likely to prevail in such a conflict must depend on the means which the contending parties could employ toward ensuring success as in republic strength is always on the side of the people, and as there are weighty reasons to induce a belief that the state governments will commonly possess most influence over them, the natural conclusion is that such contests will be most apt to end to the disadvantage of the Union, and that there is a great greater probability of encroachments by the members upon the federal head than by the federal head upon the members, end quote. So once again, he's just, he's just going over this, that the, the state government is much more likely to encroach than the federal amongst, among the state governments. And so far, historically, I mean, currently... It does make sense, but we can see a switch with a camp uh, with an administration switch in the next couple weeks. We could actually see federal government come down on people with mask policy, which would be unconstitutional, and it would be usurping their power uh, and encroaching on the state governments as well as the people themselves. Now he continues. And this is his very last quote here. He states, and I quote, To confine our attention wholly to the nature and extent of the powers as they are delineated in the Constitution, everything beyond this must be left to the prudence and firmness of the people, who, as they will hold the scales in their own hands, it is to be hoped will always take care to preserve the constitutional equal equilibrium between the general and the state governments upon this ground, which is evidently the true one. 
it will not be difficult to obviate the objections which have been made to an indefinite power of taxation in the United States, end quote. At the end of the day, he's, he's pretty much stating here, everything beyond must be the left, the firmness of the people, meaning the people. This is all left up to the people at the end of the day. And because it is held up to the people, that will provide a safeguard. Because if you're giving money to the state government, you're giving money to the federal government, you should never really have to worry because there's representatives that are supposed to be representative of the people uh, in that self-government structure and they're supposed to be passing the budget so if they're really worried about the taxation being too high they can really switch whoever their government is to their liking uh, through the democratic process of voting now if it's a so that's that's for the state and the federal government. Uh, I don't know if it really pertains today as much because the spending's pretty much blown out. I mean, I'm sure that if everybody was told, it's weird because the left though they they rate Democrats historically have raised taxes. There's a couple of Republicans as well that have done so. I think uh, George H. W.'s done it. But it's weird because they'll call for higher taxes, but it's it's the people that call for higher taxes a lot of the time, they don't call for themselves. It's always for the people that make more money than them. And then after they call for those taxes, then they hate paying taxes. It's weird because, because actually uh, Republicans pay more into charity than Democrats do, but Democrats are the ones that are requesting everyone pay their money to the government because it's supposed to help the greater good. But on average, uh, Republicans actually donate more money to charity than Democrats do. So it's kind of weird. And, and what my question is, these people that want high tax rates, what my question at, to them at the end of the day is you can actually fill out an IRS form to give your money to the government, you can really just donate it to the government. If, you, if you're if you paying currently 30% of your taxes and you think that the go people actually benefit, government is a net good on the society, that you should give more money to the government, then why don't you practice what you preach and why don't you give, you know, since you get take 30, they take 30%, why don't you give an extra 10% to the government? And that's something that doesn't happen. You know how much that actually happens? I was reading an article and I, I recall it's 10, a year it's $10 million gets given to the government in people donating the money through like an, the IRS document that I just told you about. So the entire country, we have 330 million people, 10 million people on, I mean, $10 million on average every single year. And we're an economy where we, we GDP around 22 trillion every single year. So 10 million is really minuscule. It's, it's, it's pennies. Uh, it's pennies in terms of the actual budget of the United States and the GDP. So that'll conclude this one. I greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in. I am sure in these last coming uh, these last couple of days we saw Trump get quick kicked off Twitter and then he got like reinstated recently. I think I don't know because I'm pre-recording this. And then Dan Bongino just got kicked off Twitter as well. Apparently he's going to get back on tomorrow. He's off Twitter. He's going to go to Parler. We're going to see a a huge move from these social media platforms to new platforms like Parler and maybe if they can somehow make an alternative to Facebook that probably wouldn't be happening anytime soon because Facebook's a trash heap as well. They're currently, I've stated this before, they have been suppressing my material. And then when I try to share my material, it's considered somehow spam. So I can only post so many times a day. I can only post so many things a day. And, and what I'm trying to do is just increase the traffic on my page uh, organically the best way I can because I'm not allowed to do it through paying. I would I would gladly actually pay Facebook to increase the page views and the the uh, 
the traffic to my page, but I can't get that done because they won't allow me to. And because they reject every single ad I put up or every single boost to a post that I put up. So I pretty much across the board been getting shut down. And then, and then when I go and I put it up there, no one really cares. When I, when I put the uh, status out there, no one really cares. People seem to be more interested in kind of, uh, what do you want to call it? Maybe slam dunking on you rather. If you, if you make a political statement online, they want to slam dunk on you on Facebook. But if you make a statement saying, Hey, look, first amendment, I'm getting screwed by the big tech tyrants and no one care. No one, they're actually happy secretly. They're giggling. They don't really, they won't like it. They won't comment on it, but secretly they enjoy the shutdown and the suppression of conservative content. And that's why I'm here. And as long as I have a platform to speak on, you will continually hear from me. I will be here this entire time. There's nothing that the left can do about it as much as they hate the idea of me having my own free thought and my free opinion, and they can't uh, them trying to jump on me and trying to pile on on me. If they think that that's somehow going to suppress me coming on this podcast and doing what I like to do, it's not going to happen. So uh, greatly appreciate everyone tuning in. Thank you very much. I'll see everybody on Wednesday. Make sure you check the weekend special. Uh, We're going to have some good stuff on there. So thank you.